Unforgiveness, from the sermon series, The Soul of Shame, spoken by Pastor Doug Cho. Another year, right? I've been given the pleasure of, I don't know if it's the pleasure, but the, the responsibility of wrapping up the Soul of Shame series and this year. So here we go. Uh, in the past weeks, uh, our pastors have explored uh, things like the shame of loneliness, the shame of failure, the shame of shaming others, right? and how the enemy uses shame to really perpetuate things in our lives. And so, you know, naturally, um, since I, am, I was at the tail end of this thing, you know, I asked them, how was it? How you, did you enjoy uh, preaching? And they said, the thing that they all said, actually, what tied their sermons together was, Man, I really didn't want to preach that sermon. So I was like, oh, great. Here we are, right? I believe the fourth and fifth grade ministry is here with us today. We're here to talk about shame, fourth and fifth graders. (laughs) Here we are. Um, Yeah, but the reason why the pastors were really just being, trying to be as vulnerable as they could up here was because they were, they wanted to model this concept of vulnerability in order to combat our shame. And the key word is our, right? Because this is something that we are all suffering from. And so if we could, can we just give our pastoral team a hand? Because that's really hard to do. Yes, please, please clap. Clap for me. Thank you. Here we go. Today we're going to be looking at unforgiveness and shame. And how they work together, really, against us. In weeks past, uh, we've heard this concept of how shame actually divides your brain, right, on like this biological, physiological level. It actually divides your brain. And when you experience shame, right, the right hemisphere is prevented from communicating to the left hemisphere. They are essentially out of touch with one another. And what actually happens when you experience this phenomenon is that it manifests in your body before you actually have the thought that, oh, I'm experiencing shame. And this feeling or this manifestation pans out in three ways. Uh, they describe it as fight, flight, or freeze. Fight, flight, or freeze. And that is why when you experience shame, sometimes the moment feels like it goes on forever. Right, every second is just so long. Or for others, when you experience shame, you just wanna hide, you wanna disappear. You don't wanna be seen anymore. You you just wanna escape as far away as possible. And others, your response to shame is to power up and to combat whatever is causing you to experience shame, right? You fight it in order to stop it. So what we're looking at, though, and what we're honing in on is this idea of being out of touch, right? Because when our shame manifests in or through the variety of ways we looked at, what actually happens in the brain, right, the hemispheres being out of touch with one another, actually plays out on a more community level. The community becomes out of touch with each other. We are prevented from being in touch with one another. And that is why vulnerability is this thing that we hold on to and exercise in order to get back in touch with each other. 
And in our context, we often translate vulnerability in our heads very quickly to mean transparency. We're being very open, right? But if you look at the definition of vulnerability, I think we have a slide, the meaning of vulnerability says something very, kind of a little different, right? It says that vulnerability means to be susceptible to physical or emotional attack or harm. That's what it means to be vulnerable, right? You are left vulnerable. And in actuality, when you think about transparency, it's along the same vein, right? When you are being open, when you're putting stuff out there, when you're being transparent about the things in your life, you are putting yourself out there, usually to judgment, but you're putting yourself out there. And when you're not being vulnerable, when you're not being transparent, it means that you are protecting something. It means that you are shielding something. And this is the case when we have wounding in our lives. Think about a wound when you have a cut or something that hurts. What do you do? You shield it. You hide it. You don't touch it. The worst is when you have a cut and you're trying to shower, right? Even the smallest of cuts in the shower, the worst thing, right? I don't know why. Like shampooing your hair like this, you can't use that one finger. It means all the world. It's all the difference in the world, right? But you shield that wound because you do not want it to be exposed. And that's what we do to survive. Right? A lot of times our survival instinct tells us that it's better to carry on and move forward and function with our dysfunction than it is to stop and handle whatever is going on. It's easier to just keep moving forward because you know the pace of life doesn't stop. So we keep moving and moving and moving so that you know, we just adjust. It's just adjustments. But God calls us to something different. He calls us to remove our masks. He calls us to set aside this imposter. He calls us to come to him in vulnerability. Even for those who are the most judgmental among us, you use your judgment in order to compromise Right? How you feel about yourself. Think about it. You bring others down so that you don't feel alone in the being low. It is only when the naked self meets with God, is exposed in that light, that's when shame and unforgiveness disappear. Shame and unforgiveness want to destroy the body of Christ. Shame will write a narrative in your life that you are not worthy, that you are not good enough. It'll write something in your life that imprisons you to your own condemnation. And then it will cause us to hold others captive to judgment. It whispers to us that we're imposters, that we're fakes. It tells us, can God truly delight in someone like me? Can God really delight in someone like them? You know my secret is? What really helps me a lot is I walk through those doors, I look around, and this is not to judge anyone, it's just look around and just remember, I don't have it together, and no one else has it. <laughs> you know what I mean? And that's okay. That's okay. Shame makes us selfish, self-seeking, 
hungry to prove somehow that we are not what the accusing voice tells us we are. Shame keeps us from our kingdom identity. And the dynamic of shame and unforgiveness affects us in two ways, the two ways we're gonna look at today. It affects us in the community of Christ around us and the identity of Christ within us. The community of Christ around us and the identity of Christ within us. So before we look at our passage, let's pray together. Father, thank you, Lord. We praise your name. We lift you up, God. You are worthy. You're worthy of all our praise. But more than anything, Lord, we know that you desire for your people to come to you, to know who they are, to know who you are before. And Lord God, that we would just be in this true and right relationship with you that Jesus, we would truly put off the old and embrace the new. That God, we would put down our chains, leave them at the cross, Lord, where you've broken them. So Father, uh, would your word speak? Would your word speak right now, and only your word, would it be planted in the hearts of your people? In Jesus' name I pray, amen. I'm reading from Matthew 18, 21 to 35. Matthew 18, 21 to 35. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you not seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servant. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold or talents was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had to be sold to repay the debt. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay it back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In his anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. 
The parable begins with something that I like to call like an annoying question, right? Peter is asking not a question out of curiosity or like to, to gain more knowledge or wisdom. He is asking a question what I believe to be just for brownie points, right? Lord, how many times should I forgive those around me? Seven? Right? And seven is a very generous number. Seven times, seven wrongs. And Jesus says, no, 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 not seven. Seventy-seven. Some translations take this word, take this number, and they say seven times seventy. It's four hundred ninety. So it's a lot more times than Peter's actually saying. So what we see here and what we understand from what Jesus is, how Jesus is responding is this is not a quantity issue, right? We do not count down until seventy-seven and say, okay, we're done, right? This is not a quantity issue. This is a depth issue, a depth of forgiveness issue. So the account of remembering how many times someone has wronged you, how many times someone has done you wrong, is missing the point of forgiveness totally. We are looking at the quality of forgiveness, the depth of what true forgiveness looks like. So we're gonna look at 1 Corinthians 13 real quick, because this is about love. And it's not about marital love. It's not about romantic love. It's about the simple Christ follower's love and how we are called to love. It reads, love is patient, love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. So if you're thinking, man, no record of wrongs. That's kind of hard. Yeah, you're correct. That is very hard. And I want to ask you, do you believe that an unforgiving person, right, someone who has a limit on their forgiveness, can they fulfill these qualities? Right, if you continue to read 1 Corinthians 13, it says, love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. If there's a limit on your forgiveness, how can you always trust? How can you always hope? How can you fulfill this love? And some of you may ask, Pastor Doug, then are we called to naively forgive people over and over? In a sense, yes. And then if you ask me, Pastor Doug, then if they do the same thing over and over again against me, am I called to just forgive them? Absolutely then how does this make sense? Because God's forgiveness of you looks like that. That's what God's forgiveness for us looks like. Again and again and again and again and again. No strings attached. He forgives us in that way. And this is not to say that we're called to be like run over and like abused, right? I'm not, I'm not saying that. I'm not condoning that. Because the passage prior to this section is actually about conflict resolution, which I think many of you should reread, right? It's about conflict resolution. It's about confronting your neighbor. It's dealing with relationships in order to keep the body of church united and holy, right? Christ's instructions for us. If someone has done you wrong, confront them one-on-one, in private. Meet with them. Talk with them. Call them out. If that conversation does not go well, what do you do? Bring in a mediator. Bring in a mediator. 
talk it out, figure it out. But in all of this, forgive them over and over and over and over and over again. A while ago, there was some teaching on the difference between reconciliation and forgiveness. And, you know, while I was meditating on this, I was kind of disturbed at the way we abuse this teaching. Reconciliation and forgiveness are not the same thing. I agree with that wholeheartedly. Forgiveness takes one party. It takes the self. Only the self needs to forgive. Reconciliation requires at least two parties to come and be in agreement with each other. Forgiveness being uh, a necessary prerequisite for this to happen. However, what is conveniently forgotten is that we only acknowledge this distinction when the other party is an abuser and a threat to your well-being. That is when we acknowledge this. Because if they are, we are using wisdom to love and to distance ourselves from them. We are caring for ourselves by removing ourselves from a situation. That is wisdom. If that is not your case, then you need to refer to Matthew 18, 15. And if you did try to reconcile, like truly tried to reconcile, you get a pass, right? There's nothing you can do if the other party is not in agreement with you. But I've heard it said, no, no, no. No, 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 no. I've forgiven them. I have. But don't need to reconcile. No need for that. Or, no, 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 no. Don't. I've forgiven them. But there's no reason for me to have anything to do with them anymore. Let's be honest. Let's be really honest here. Do you believe that's what God's forgiveness looks like? What are we called then to do when we forgive others? How should it look like? For those who think they have forgiven in this way, I want to challenge you. I want to challenge that thought. Because my guess is you probably are just hoping to never see them ever again. Right? Right? I've had that because I know, I know that feeling when you're just kind of on your way and then you just so happen to see that person. It's, it's usually you don't even see them. You hear them. Right? They're here. They're here. And you just know there's this tension builds up in your chest. Right? And then you see them. Like, oh, my God. Why are they here? What are they doing in my church? Right? And then there's discomfort. Right? There's a hyper-awareness. There's an annoyance inside of you. I get it. I've been there. And it's probably because this particular person triggers shame inside of you. So what do we do when we see them? If that person is over here, we walk like this. <laughs> right? Or if they're like over here, you kind of just like put blinders on and you just, you just walk. Right? And like no one walks like that, but you're just ignoring a gaze is what we do. We pretend they don't exist. We don't acknowledge them. And rather than confront them, 
and hash things out, what do we do? We let cracks form in the body of Christ. I mean, it's kind of absurd, right? To, to think that we can claim one portion of the church as our part of the church, right? This is my ministry. You cannot serve here. You serve in that ministry, right? On the second floor. You go to the second floor. I'll stay down here, right? That's absurd. It doesn't make sense. In forgiving, we make ourselves vulnerable. But we do it to preserve the unity and the holiness of Christ's body. Amen? Amen. Back to the parable. Verse 23. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servant. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold or talents was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. This debt that we're looking at, unrealistic. Right? There's actually no point in measuring this debt. Not possible. It should not be possible to accrue this kind of debt. Scholars actually say that this servant was actually more of like one of his officials. And he was called to steward some of the king's wealth. And he did it poorly. He mishandled uh, whatever it was. And then he accrued this massive amount of debt. Right? It kind of sounds like the Genesis account. But 10,000 talents debt. One talent is equal to 6,000 drachma, which is about equal to 15 years wages. Right? So one talent, 15 years of working. 10,000 is pretty much the highest uh, denomination of number that people used for money. So in actuality, the number that we're looking at here is a gajillion bazillion, right? <laughs> it's just, there's so much of it, there's no point in figuring out how much money. This amount is more money than King's, King Herod's taxes that he collected every year. It's just massive, right? This man will never pay this debt back, right? His pleas to, to make good and to really like tell him that he's going to like do everything he can to pay, pay back is worthless. Makes no sense whatsoever. Yet the master has compassion on him and sets him free. No strings attached. And we must note here, the servant never makes good with the master. The servant never pays it back, not even a copper coin, but the master forgives him first. This is what the grace and mercy of God does for his people. It sets us free. The Bible is littered with this type of language, right? God will no longer remember our transgressions. He'll blot them out, right? As far as the east is from the west, so far he has removed our transgressions from us. That is God's forgiveness. And if you think about it, that is the vulnerability of our Father. He knows you're going to sin again. He knows. He knows your faith is going to waver. He knows you'll sin against Him. Yet He has committed to and drawn us into this new covenant 
before we make good with him. He does this, he draws us into him to reconcile us with him. That is the depth of his forgiveness over and over and over and over again. As image bearers of the Father, we are called to live into this type of forgiveness and to share it with our world. That is why we are the light of the world. When you forgive others, does the one you forgive experience freedom? Does the one you forgive experience freedom when you give your forgiveness? It's when you have every justification to judge this person, every right to hold it against them, and you release them. Do they experience freedom? Verse 28, but when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay it back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. A hundred silver coins. The complexity of this parable is shown here through this, through this amount. See, 100 silver coins, it pales in comparison to 10,000 talents, right? 100 silver coins uh, is equivalent to about 100 days' wages, right? We have to acknowledge here, compared to the king's debt, microscopic, right? Drop in the bucket, whatever other analogy you can use. But 100 days' wages is is a significant amount. Think about this. What if someone owed you five months pay? Pay me. Give me my money. This is five months pay. So yes, microscopic compared to the king, still significant amount. And this, this amount is very symbolic of something that we experience. Because some of us have had 100 silver coin offenses that were inflicted upon us. Some of us have suffered 100 coin offenses. 100 coin wounds, maybe from your childhood, maybe from your family, maybe from your spouse, maybe from trauma from a stranger. Some of us have heavy debts that we hold on to. There are deep wounds that we want to protect and we cannot let go of. Heavy, hard to give up. I interpret this in this parable as Christ is standing with us in our vulnerability and acknowledging that there is a weight and a cost to the forgiveness that we give to others. Jesus is telling us, I know it's hard. I know it's hard to forgive. I know that there's a price to pay to forgive. Christ is acknowledging that it is sacrifice to forgive. And I believe that is why the Father modeled this for us first in paying the ultimate sacrifice through his son. 
first. And then he calls us to follow. Forgiveness was never meant to be easy. If you look at the heart of the servant, there is no transformation in this man when he leaves the king's quarters. He sees his fellow servant. And even after receiving this grace and mercy that was poured out onto him, he chokes this man. That, the word in the Greek for choke, it hints at this idea he was strangling him. He did not treat him with dignity. He abused him. And when the servant begged the fellow servant to be patient, the same plea, be patient until I pay it back, he said no. It threw him into prison. When we fail to forgive those around us, that is what we do. We imprison them and we hold them hostage. Right? Hopefully not physically, but mostly in our minds. We hold them hostage. Simple illustration. You have someone in your life, right? Think of now, that you, know, you don't get along with. They bother you all the time. How many times have you imagined an argument in your head with them and you just pick them apart, right? You destroy them in this argument. They say one thing, you're like, no, no, no. You shut them down, you shut that down, you shut. And it's the most satisfying argument you've never had, right? <laughs> Ooh, feels so good fantasizing about that. Hold them hostage. I get it. I get it. But we cannot constantly keep accounts of these things. Right? A one silver coin offense here. A five coin offense over here. A 50 coin debt over here. We accrue this long list of debts that are owed to us over and over. And this list grows and grows. And what happens is we lose sight of the 10,000 talents that was removed from us. We get so caught up in this list that we are owed. We lose sight of the 10,000. There can be no freedom in bitterness. Can be none. We are called to live into the depth of God's grace and mercy. His inability to forgive stems from the fact that he does not know who he is and what he has received. He does not know who he is and what he has received. If he did, how could he treat this man this way? God's people know that they have received Christ Jesus, the ultimate sacrifice, God's unending grace, mercy, and love. And in this way, we embrace who we are as God's people. That is what makes us God's people. We follow him in this way. We are image bearers of the king of kings. And that is why Christ warns us, when we refuse to forgive, God will treat us the same the standard to which God's people are called to live by is high. Think about the Lord's Prayer. You read the Lord's Prayer. What does it say? Forgive us, Father, as we forgive our debtors. Amen. And this is not because God is an, a vindictive God. It is because as his children, we know we are worthy. 
We are beloved sons and daughters of the king. But it, then it also means that others around us belong to that king. We are to treat them the same. So how can we possibly go and gossip and slander and refuse to acknowledge those who are the kings? Those whom we worship with? Cannot. Shame twists our kingdom identity and it confuses it. And it forces us to lose touch with ourselves. It creates a narrative in our life that's filled with lies, accusations, and assumptions. You cannot treat others according to their kingdom identity if you do not know your own. Unfortunately, that's the other side to this. Our shame and unforgiveness imprisons us as well. It comes from the same root problem, lack of kingdom identity, lack of death. But shame makes an accusation against us. It tells you that you are not worthy. It tells you that you are not enough. The, the disciples model this for us when Christ is arrested and they abandon him. What do they do? They hide in fear. They lock the door. They go back to their old professions. They drop everything. Christ needs to come and re-enter and breathe upon them the Holy Spirit and tell them peace be with you. He needs to free them again, reinstate them so that they're released from this. I've counseled far too many people in our church who are successful and wonderful people but will never be enough in their own eyes. Fathers and mothers who are disappointed in themselves. And so what they do is they drive their children to do everything, all the activities, to fill all the hours of the week out of fear that their, their child is going to be average because they don't want it to be a reflection of who they are. People who are extremely successful and the reason for their success, their shame. Their shame is a slave driver that drives them to achieve and to achieve and to achieve and to climb and to climb and to climb until they're exhausted, until they neglect everything around them. Single people who fear that they can't live a full life until they get married. That's not what God called you to. Do you think God called you to that? To need someone? To require someone? People with body image issues, both men and women, who refuse to see the beauty inside them. Far too many women who have been sexually assaulted and raped and continue to believe that it's their fault for what happened to them. It's not your fault. That was never your fault. You never, never, ever had a responsibility for that. Shame is an accuser who does not want you to forgive yourself. Shame is an accuser that does not want you to forgive yourself. So family, we need to embrace ourselves in our nakedness, 
in our vulnerability, embrace ourselves, forgive ourselves, and really grapple onto our kingdom identity. So I was thinking about an illustration for this. And man, I like really struggled. Um, immediately when I think of forgiveness, the first thing I jump to is my father. Right? And many of you know, right? Um, it was a long and hard journey with him. Um, but, you know, we, we reconciled now. We have a pretty good relationship. I would say in our family, he's probably the closest to me. But it's hard to preach about him because in actuality, I feel like I betray him when I preach about him. You know, none of you really know him. Um, and I don't, I don't want him, I don't want you to think badly about my dad, you know. I want him to come here. And I want him to worship here. And my sister goes to this church. You know, it's hard for my sister too. It's her father too. And this is our family's shame. I can only imagine how, what she's feeling, knowing what I'm going through when I share. But we've reconciled some time ago. And things have been good. But the problem with reconciling is that just because you reconcile with someone doesn't mean like that person is going to be perfect, right? Like when you make up with someone, it's not like, okay, everything is great, right? Like they keep, they, they, they screw up, right? Yes. And like what happens is they incur these offenses against you again and again and again and again. We do this to ourselves as well. We incur these offenses against ourselves again and again and again. I want you to listen to your self-talk. How many of you call yourself stupid? What do you call yourself when you mess up? What do you say to yourself when you make a mistake? You know, like, the people I know who, like, don't really curse. They curse the most when they're talking to themselves. It's crazy. We incur these offenses over and over. See, the people that we have to forgive the most are often the closest to us. I have, like, I, I have a literal ranking. Right? The first is my father. The second is myself. The third is my mother. And the fourth is my wife. <laughs> these are the people I forgive over and over and over again. My goodness. So 2019, um, I kind of got away with not talking about him much. But, um, oh, this sermon happened. Um, <laughs> I grew up with this, this, this huge uh, lack of approval. Um, I was never good enough for him. And he would smack me and he would say things to me. He would call me things. And that just really formed who I was. Um, and there are so many things about me that uh, I wasn't happy with that what I would do is I, I would lie a lot about who I was. I would lie so much, you know? And I would embellish all these things because in, in all honesty, I believed that people didn't want to be with me if I didn't, if I didn't do that. Um, one of the things that I was actually pretty good at, though, much younger, was golf. And um, 
they caught on to this, you know, they bought me a set of Big Berthas, and, you know, I, I was that kid who was, who was at the golf range hitting 200 balls until, like, he was dying, and then, like, I would go home, right? And um, they would take me out to the course, and the thing about golf, if you play golf, is one of the best things about the game is when you hit the ball, and then the ball goes, and it goes straight, and it goes to where you want it, right? And just like, kind of watching it fly. And... You know, for a little bit, I got to enjoy doing that until we started going to the course. And I, for some reason, I I couldn't understand why. Like, every time I would tee up at this thing, I would start, like, shaking, right, when my dad was watching me. And I realized it was that when I hit the ball and it went straight and it went well, he was like, good, next. And we hit, the, you know, because golf is kind of like a merciless game. It's like, it's, a, it's a, literally a game about perfection. Like, you have to go hit the next ball, right? When I screwed up, when I sliced it, when I hooked it, whatever, he would freak out in front of people we didn't know. He would just scream at me, what are you doing? Why did you do that? You're wasting this. What? And it would just torment me again and again and again and again and again. 100 balls, right? So I would hit this thing. If I did well, all I could think about, okay, on to the next one. On to the next one. On to the next one. Until that day was over. Around like 18 holes is what, it's like four hours. And he beat this idea inside of me is that I needed to perform in order for people to be pleased with me. I have to perform, 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 perform. And this has been something I've still been struggling with because it manifests at my work at church. I need to perform as a pastor. I need to perform as a husband. I need to perform as a son. I need to perform as a friend. And I have my own personal slave driver driving me, driving me to perform to perform. And when I screw up, my goodness, you should listen to my self-talk. How I devalue myself. How I curse myself. How I hate myself. This past year, something happened uh, in April that was really heavy for me. Um, and it... it it was my version of a 100-coin offense. And, you know, I, I held this thing, and, you know, like, being as we are, like, functioning within our dysfunction, I, I, I tried to carry it, you know, go, and then went on my sabbatical in July. And then my wife fell into depression. You know, and I wasn't working at church, so I didn't have, like, this, this affirmation of my work. My, my wife wasn't doing well. My family wasn't doing well. Everything around me was failing. And all I could do was curse myself day in and day out. I would cry bitterly because nothing was working out and everything was falling apart. And all I could do was blame myself. I could not forgive myself for these things happening. And I remember, I used to pray, so like, I used to pray on my knees like this, but while I was doing that, I used to pray with my face down like this. 
And I was just say, God, help me. Help me. Help me. And all God would say in response was, remember how much I love you. Remember how much I love you. And then he would say, I am enough. I mean, in the moment, I'm like, God, I need help. I need you to to work something out. God, what am I doing? And I would say these things about myself. These, these, this, this garbage, this toxicity would come out of my mouth regarding myself. And God would say, remember how much I love you. Remember that I am enough. And I didn't really get it at the time, but what he was telling me was, remember how much I love you. Remember how much I love your father. Remember how much I love your wife. And I am enough for you in this time. I am enough for you. I am enough for your wife. I am enough for your situation. So release yourself from that. Many of us here need to release ourselves from our own condemnation. Remove this guilt that we feel that we are a mistake, that we are not performing. I pray that this new year can be that for you. Let's pray together. (sighs) Just take a second. And right now, um, I just want to challenge you to pray a blessing over yourself. Not like, oh, Lord, hope I hit the Powerball. (laughs) Pray a blessing over yourself. Pray, Father, help me to to know how much you love me. Help me to see how sufficiently you've created me. Help me to understand the depth of your forgiveness. Zephaniah 3.17, it's my verse this year. The Lord your God is with you, the mighty warrior who saves. He will take great delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. God, I want to hear you rejoice over me. I want to hear your song for me. It's in this way that we can heal And that we can pray the same thing for others around us, to bless them, even those who've wronged us, to bless our community again and again and again, over and over and over. To heal, 
and to be free. We must confront the voices and the demons that accuse us with God's love. Father, I just want to thank you for this time. I thank you for your word. And I ask you, God, help us to hear your song, to experience your mercy and the renewal of ourselves in your love. That we would truly understand that removed our transgressions it was for eternity when you committed to us in love it was until glory and that God you really do delight in your people may every single person in this room experience the depth of your love right now, Jesus. I ask the Holy Spirit that you would just minister in that way, that you would fill them. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Uh, if you have your communication card, flip it over, there's some next steps. The first is I'm committing my life to Jesus for the first time. This is the best news. We're with you, we're celebrating. Uh, there's a table for you right outside those double doors called the next table. Someone's gonna be there to uh, talk with you, pray with you, answer any of your questions. Please visit that. The second is I will read Matthew 18, 15 to 20 and confront those who I have issues with in truth and love. This is a brave and bold step. I pray that you'll take this seriously to really unite our body together, to be one. The third is I will share with a close friend areas in my life in which I struggle to forgive myself. I hope that you can have some release in that. That you would understand God's love a little better when you do that. The fourth is I will meditate on Ephesians 1-3 through to better understand my kingdom identity. Ephesians 1-3 through is a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful passage. Uh, collection of scripture that really focuses on God's delight in us, his pleasure for us, his will for us. And it just really speaks to this depth of love. And fifth is I will use my New Year's, I will use my New Year's resolution to rethink what success means in my life for 2020. Uh, the upcoming sermon series is called 2020 Discerning God's Will for the New Year. Right? So we really will be looking at just how we set things up for this new year and what we're going into. Uh, Pastor Peter will be preaching a powerful sermon next week. Also, I think there's a slide for this. Right? We saw it uh, during moderating. Uh, Mount Olive is having a New Year's Eve service on Tuesday at 10 p.m. It's at 10 p.m. Ends at 12.01 a.m. Uh, just ring in the new year through prayer, worship, and the word. Definitely hope to see you there.